I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Gemma Finnegan. And you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. I'm joined by a new person, very exciting in the media studio, Gemma Finnegan. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Undercurrents. Thank you, Ben. I'm very excited to be here. So Gemma, you work with me uh, in the communications team, but you're part of the press office. Yes, Uh, I am. Maybe could you tell us a bit about what that means? Yeah, of course. So the press office at Chatham House, we manage all of the proactive and reactive media out of the house. So Proactive, we mean we do all of the media and press engagement for our reports and our events. But uh, reactive, which is, takes up most of my job, is we're reacting to the news of the day. Action, reaction. Exactly. Nice, nice, so nice, our nice. phone is always ringing. Yep, I always hear it. It's like the soundtrack <laughs> to my day. But you have some very exciting news, am I right? The yes. press office today. Tell me about that. Oh, we were ranked number one for media engagement. Number one? Yeah, in think tanks worldwide. What? Says who? says the Think Tank Index from the University of Pennsylvania. So we're in the presence of greatness this week. No, uh, thank you. A number one press officer <laughs> at Chatham House. Very exciting. And Gemma's going to be joining us uh, again later to tell us a little bit about an interesting project that we're both working on called Common Futures Conversations. But first, we've got an interview with the Russia and Eurasia programme. Delighted to be joined by James Nixie, who is the director of the programme, and also Kate Mallinson, who's an associate fellow. And they've authored a paper about... Kazakhstan and the transition that we're currently undergoing there and it's really interesting so enjoy it. So I'm delighted today to be joined by some colleagues from the Russia and Eurasia programme here at Chatham House to talk about Kazakhstan. So with me, I've got James Nixie, who is the director of the programme, and Kate Mallinson, who is an associate fellow with the programme. And together with six colleagues, they co-authored a blockbuster report, which came out in November 2019, titled Kazakhstan Tested by Transition, which is available to download on the Chatham House website. Get the plug in early. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Ben, thank you very much. It's great to have the opportunity. You know I'm a big fan. Thank you very much. Friend of the pod, James Nixie. Um, (laughs) Thank you, Ben. Great to be here. So I just thought, can we just begin, apologies for the basic question, but could you take us back through the recent history of Kazakhstan so that we can sort of talk about how we got to where we are today? Absolutely. Kazakhstan is, of course, a post-Soviet country, and therefore, like all post-Soviet countries, it's actually only 30 years old. Clearly, it's got an impressive history before that. But the reality is, and this is a singular feature about Kazakhstan, is it's had the same ruler from its inception in 1991 when it broke away from the parent state of Russia, if you like. Mm -hmm. And Nursultan Nazarbayev uh, was on the throne, if you like, uh, right up until April of 2019. Mm -hmm. Then there was a managed transition, if you like, an orchestrated transition and he appointed a successor he could trust, President Kasim Jamat Takayev, uh, an experienced diplomat, but still a, a generation almost younger. 
So in a way, we actually still find ourselves in almost the same situation as we did back in 1991, which is not to say that Kazakhstan hasn't made some tremendous achievements. In, in a way, that's, that's the whole point of the report we've written, because Kazakhstan is a leader in its field, relatively speaking, compared to, say, Turkmenistan or uh, Armenia, Moldova, other post-Soviet countries. Kazakhstan does pretty well, blessed by certain natural advantages. It's a large state. It's... Its rulers have always wanted the best for its country. That can't be said of every other state. Remembering, this is you know, the ninth largest country in the world. It borders Russia and China. There are certain, as I say, natural advantages. Mm, mm. But <laughs> so there's this interesting mix of, of complete and utter lack of change. And yet it's come so far, relatively speaking, and could be a model for others. And the important point, that it need that... There is potential for the future here and managed properly, both internally and with the right support from outside, then it can be an example to others. So, um, Kate, could we just wind the clock back a little bit and talk about 1991 and the situation that Kazakhstan found itself in at that time? Could you tell us a bit about that transition before we talk about the one that we're currently sort of seeing? Thank you, Ben. I mean, when you look at 1991, um, when Kazakhstan had its kind of independence in some ways reluctant, it was reluctant to, to take the independence. Okay. It's, it's kind of important to also look back at Kazakhstan's relationship with Russia and the Soviet Union, which has been sort of quite complicated over time, but also that very much impacts what's happening today in the country. And as James mentioned, Kazakhstan is situated between Russia and China, kind of a, a difficult position to be in. Mm. Kazakhstan has the longest continuous border in the world, which is 4,000 kilometres with Russia. And its history over the last 100 and 120 years has very, it's very much been interdependent, both kind of economically and um, politically with Russia. And that influenced what we saw in the 90s. As I said, Nazarbayev was, was reluctant. Um, he was the, it was Kazakhstan was the last country in the Soviet Union to become independent. And it was a very difficult period for the country, particularly economically. When Kazakhstan was pushed out of the ruble zone, it was a very kind of difficult period for the country to sort of pick itself up and, and, and to land on its own two feet. And I think First President Nazarbayev really has to be credited um, for what he did in those first difficult years, particularly undertaking some very impressive economic um, reforms. Yeah, absolutely. Could you tell us a bit more about the steps that President Nazarbayev took in the 90s to sort of improve the situation? Yes, uh, he took some important sort of economic steps to kind of put Kazakhstan on the path for being a market economy, undermining some of the kind of Soviet heritage and the kind of command economy. He took steps to, to break that up. Um, for Nazarbayev, his motto was all, always economy first and then politics. Mm. And some kind of critics see that perhaps have been taken too far. And that's why we see some of the issues today, particularly around the political protests that we saw um, following his re resignation and, 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 and then the subsequent elections. It's kind of disappointment with the fact that he, although he took undertook some impressive economic reforms, the political reforms really lagged. But one other issue that he should be credited for is the steps he took to preserve inter-ethnic stability during this time. Because Kazakhstan is a multi-ethnic state, there are more than 120 ethnic groups. Wow. 
And uh, as we've talked about the location, it's situated in quite a restive region um, mm. where we've seen quite a lot of civil conflict over the last 30 years. And, and so Nazarbayev was credited with the economic growth during this first decade, which was very rapid. Um, and Kazakhstan became the most impressive sort of economic player in the CIS, particularly the banking sector, mm. um, was, was shown as an example to the rest of the region of what could be done. Unfortunately, reforms kind of uh, stalled in the kind of early 2000s, perhaps we could say owing to the country's over-dependence on oil export, um, which is a reason why it failed to undertake, you know, really real meaningful structural reforms. And it was when the oil price collapsed in 2014 and the ebb of this kind of easy money coming into the country began that we kind of really saw the lack of political reform that Nazarbayev had undertaken during his, his three-year decade. And you could perhaps say that, you know, we saw the emperor without his clothes. <laughs> Quite an image. James, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how the West in particular reacted to Kazakhstan's independence in the 90s. How mm. how mm. did they engage with Kazakhstan? Because obviously Kate mentioned that uh, initially the country was, it was quite reluctant to leave the Soviet Union. It was the last country to do so. How did the West respond? Yeah, it was very difficult for the West because they suddenly found themselves with 15 new countries to deal with. Mm. You suddenly had to have 15 new diplomats, 14, if you like, new diplomatic missions. And they didn't immediately send diplomatic missions to some of the countries as it happens. But you suddenly needed to have 14 policies, 15 policies instead of just one. And this is part of the reason why people like Gorbachev... And Thatcher didn't actually want to see the breakup of the Soviet Union. They, they couldn't comprehend what it would what it would involve. And they were worried about infinite fracture, if you like. Yeah, yeah. So come 1991 and subsequent years, it was uh, – we were, we were Moscow-centric still. Mm-hmm. You know, Yeltsin had, 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 had come to the fore. We were still trying to – that was a, a chaotic period, as I'm sure you remember – and 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 we didn't really have a policy either for Central Asia, much less for Kazakhstan or anywhere else. There were internecine civil wars, some interstate to an extent at the time. If you remember, Georgia, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh were all blowing up around that time, so that took away a certain attention. And yes, it's a it's uh, this is a region uh, riven with conflict, but actually that conflict has been more actually this century than last conflicts right. in. Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, we've seen some violence. So uh, I think initially confusion, ignorance, mm-hmm. but then you see which countries come to the fore, which countries genuinely want to make something of themselves, um, which countries are blessed with natural resources. At the end of the day, it's fair to say that Westerners' primary interest in Kazakhstan is kind of making a buck there. Mm. Um, and you're able to do that in Kazakhstan in a way in which was not possible in, in, in other countries. So obviously investors if not flooded in, should we say trickled in, some were there in the early 1990s, eager to capitalise and, you know, offer support to an extent. And there was, it's not it's not total greed. And the Kazakhstanis, unlike some countries, did spend some of those oil revenues on infrastructure, on building a new capital city, in fact. Um, Astana, now renamed Nursultan, uh, as of last year. And so... The unlike, say, in neighbouring Uzbekistan, where its long-time leader, who died some three years ago now, did nothing for his country and really was an out-and-out dictator and was crueler than most, yeah. then that is actually not true of Kazakhstan. 
which is not to whitewash because there are significant problems and we mentioned these in the report in human rights, say, for example, and that has been the case, particularly, I recall, in the early 2000s when people were, shall we say, disappeared. Um, I see that a little bit less now, but there are still restrictions in Kazakhstan. So I, I, I don't, I, it's very, we've tried very hard, as my colleagues and I have written this report, to give credit where it's due, but at the same time to do, to do warts and all. And it's been a process of learning, to go back to your question, since the 1990s, um, to understand a little bit more about, about a region which I suppose very few people have been to right. understand, regard as former Soviet or worse still, Russia. But, uh, but one, of the, one of the things that I suppose that, that you know, a Chatham House education can, almost gives you, gave me anyway, as I've been here for 20 years now, is to understand that each of these countries are so very different historically, um, linguistically, culturally, gastronomically, technologically. I mean, so, uh, but of course, that's something that often, you know, Russia has tried to put a clamp down on. And it's something actually that I feel very strongly that the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House needs to, needs to fight against, in fact. Kate, I just wondered if we could pick up a little bit on what James was talking about regarding the governance of Kazakhstan internally. Is it simplistic or wrong to talk about Nazarbayev as a dictator? How was the government kind of structured under, under him? Without doubt, you could say that the governance of Kazakhstan is characterised by a certain soft authoritarianism. Critics say that um, the government has kind of suppressed dissent and sidelined the opposition, particularly over the last few years in the run-up to, to what we saw last year, um, the, the first stage, the first act of the presidential sort of transition. Mm. But as James has already mentioned, um, in comparison to its neighbours, although all comparisons are evil, I would say <laughs> that um, Kazakhstan has done, a better, has done a better job. But that's to not, you know, it often compares itself and, and, and thinks that it can be let off, but it's in a very difficult complicated region where the trajectory is kind of a move towards um, more kind of authoritarian governance. Mm -hmm. Has the, um, you said it was most severe in sort of recent years, has that been in response to the population of Kazakhstan calling for more leniency or more freedom? What's Um, been driving that? Um, that's a very interesting question. Um, I would say it again kind of goes back to the kind of economic situation in Kazakhstan. And there was a social contract between um, the first president, Nazarbayev, and his people, whereby they saw kind of incrementally improving sort of socioeconomic conditions in nothing major, but but kind of stability in return for sort of political stability. You know, again, the government used to always point to neighbouring countries where there was kind of political instability. And so that lasted as long as um, people felt there were opportunities in the country um, and that their lives were, were, were getting better um, and, and um, you know, economically they weren't suffering. But I think after 2014, um, when the tide went out, people, it really exposed myriad governance issues in particular, mm-hmm. including the sort of lack of rule of law and corruption, but also the lack of opportunity um, for the Kazakhstani population. And I think that's today we're seeing more migration 
migration out of Kazakhstan than we've ever seen before. And, and that speaks for itself in many ways. And I think you know, a lot of Kazakhs don't necessarily see the future um, for their children, for their grandchildren in the country that Kazakhstan is today, where it's the, failed to undertake structural reforms to provide employment opportunities outside of oil, the oil and gas sector, which traditionally doesn't um, provide much um, many work opportunities. Just out of interest, where are the um, where are the migrants going to? Where are the main sources of? I mean, all over. All They're over. coming to okay. England, okay. to mm-hmm. the Baltics, um, oh, okay. to America, okay. some of, uh, to China, um, and and to Turkey. So we've kind of set the scene there. So James, I was just wondering whether you could tell us a little bit about why we saw President Nazarbayev step down in 2019. What was the thinking there, and who took over? Yeah, I must say that uh, we finished the first draft of this report in April, uh, in, in March, and he, he resigned in April. So oh. we, we did some rewriting, <laughs> but that's the nature of business that we're in. Look, he's, he's 79. Seems, I mean, Kate and I have met him a couple of times over the years. Um, seems healthy, but you never know. There are always rumours, right? But he's a smart man, and he looks to the future. And he also knows, perhaps, that the country's not doing so well, as Kate said. But if that's the case, then the prudent thing to do is to step aside and let another figurehead take any flack that's coming. So whether it be that he doesn't like want to leave the office in a coffin, as so many of his Central Asian counterparts have done, mm. or that he can see an oncoming storm and doesn't want to take the, the brunt of that, I don't exactly know. But the fact of the matter is, is that he had become... Um, the longest-serving post-Soviet leader. So Vladimir Putin, 20, by the way. The others died before they managed to... Re- he, so he was he was 28 years in power. And he was actually the leading figure in Kazakhstan even before even before the Soviet Union fell. He was... So he sort of... Uh, how do I put this? He, he, he naturally assumed that position by virtue of his previous... Uh, of his previous commission on the Central Committee, if you like. Yep. So, you know, come 2019, we had seen some evidence of it. There had been some reshuffles, you know, certainly for rumours, but as I say, you always get those anyway. And he does bring something of a surprise because in our region, it's pretty rare for... Um, a leader to voluntarily cede power, obviously even more so than to be defeated at the ballot box, sorry. And so, so this is, it is it is a significant moment for the region uh, as a whole and and for Kazakhstan. Now, that is not to say, of course, that he has indeed ceded power, because as I said at the beginning, this is at best an orchestrated transition, and Nazarbayev, in my view, at any rate, is the most powerful man in the country. Still, he is still. Um, retains very significant um, positions, firstly as self-anointed leader of a nation and secondly as head of the Security Council. And even some five or six months into his <laughs> retirement, having stepped back from a the job, then actually there was a rollback decree which reduced some powers of the presidency of I'll come on to Kasim Jamal Takayev, but of the, of the presidency, and were transferred over to him in his Security Council persona right. capacity. Mm-hmm. So we have a situation whereby, you know, at best, he was step, taking his foot off the accelerator, but at worst, it was just what we call maskerovka, um, you know, a sort of a deception operation, whereby in order to retain power... He needed to you know, cook the books in some way and, and, and make it appear 
uh, as though as though he was he was doing the I don't know about the democratic thing, but uh, but doing doing something, anything yeah, yeah. To, to retain power after so, after so long officially in power. So uh, his choice was a well-known man in the West. Kasim Jamal Takayev had been a foreign minister beforehand. Um, he was well known as a capable, as a very capable technocrat. He is obviously a Russian speaker, but also a Mandarin speaker, oh, okay. which is very significant for as we were beginning to talk about um, Russia and China before, and perhaps can come on to do so. But, and so he looks like, again, just to do the parallels, you may recall that this has happened in 2012 in Russia, when President Putin ran out of terms and he needed to castle with Dmitry Medvedev. But we all knew that Putin was really running things. So the question is, is, is that parallel really true in, in Kazakhstan? Because there are rumours that it's a very difficult relationship between the two now. Whether we can call this a duopoly or a tandem, I think is open to, some, is open to question, bearing in mind the significant power that, that it has. And there isn't actually that much transparency about the disbursement of power. That's what we all want to know, is how is power dispersed in Kazakhstan right now? And honestly, we don't know that. So and I'd say this ambiguity... And this lack of clarity about where the power lies is having a huge impact on the country in terms of slowing down decision making because major sort of questions, you know, particularly regarding investment um, and other issues have to be sort of squared off with various um, power constituents now. And the, the system was already slow. It's already it's an incredibly bureaucratic um, political system. You know, some of that's, you know, due to its Soviet sort of legacy. Um, but also, that, you know, that's that, that, that's the Kazakh nature of power. And without decisive leadership without someone who can really take the reins at this critical moment for the country where the country is facing challenges both domestically and externally from its neighbours, the country's not going to be able to undertake the structural reforms that it really needs to take. And Tokayev, President Tokayev's power was kind of undermined already before he he took power, as James has mentioned, that for the first president really still kind of Holds, holds, holds the reins of the country. I mean, after three decades in power, he's got this kind of messianic view of himself and he, it's, it's very difficult for him to step aside. But I'd say where it contrasts from Russia is that the first president will turn 80 this year. Um, he hasn't been well and he knows his time is limited. Um, so he is looking to hand over power ultimately to someone who will safeguard his family's wealth and power. And so ultimately, he's looking ahead at how he can make this transition. And so this first act by kind of anointing um, Kasim Jomart um, uh, was the first stage in this. And uh, But people have been waiting for this political transition to happen for over a decade to, to give some clarity about the future trajectory of the country. But now we've the first stage has happened. And this clarity is, is, is not here, unfortunately. Obviously, this is a relatively domestic discussion that is ongoing in Kazakhstan. But in the meantime, how has Kazakhstan been projecting its kind of foreign policy abroad? What's what's been driving that, and how have how do both leaders seem to want to approach that? So, Nesultan Nazarbayev, as, a, as an experienced um, strongman leader, mm-hmm. is the almost the creator and certainly the master of what we call a multi-vectored foreign policy, which sort of means tries to be all things to everybody. That's, that's difficult, and yet he manages it because, because Russia and the West are not getting on. Yeah. Trying to 
get on with both of those countries is almost a, a contradiction in, in, in terms. Again, he, he, he's done that very well. He, significantly, Kazakhstan does not have any, any real enemies on the international stage. Relations have been a little bit fractured or frictious with, with Uzbekistan, but even that, actually, I mean, Takayev has, um, in his short time as president, made overtures towards the other Central Asian states. And the improvement of relations with those other Central Asian states is is a significant feature of his presidency so far. And also of the relatively new president of Uzbekistan, who is more of a reformer than his predecessor. It wouldn't have been difficult, frankly. So Kazakhstan's relations, obviously, are to a certain extent based upon its trade relations. And mm-hmm. it does trade more with the EU um, than any other bloc. And clearly, China... Uh, and Russia are really serious trading partners. So it can't afford, with its relatively precarious economic situation, to make these sort of trading enemies. So it's a, it's a, it's a tough business doing your foreign policy in a fractious region mm. surrounded by wannabe great powers or, in reality, great powers if it's China, with the West sometimes not always acting like a paragon of virtue, as I say, the, the exploitation. We have... Often, I'm afraid, I'm going to mention Tony Blair Associates here out of the blue because they uh, were hired by uh, Nazarbayev's government some six years ago, I think, and uh, you know, to provide advice um, for how to govern a country in a more liberal fashion. That didn't really happen. Clearly, the TBA took some flack for that. And you know, so did the West. We are not necessarily as trusted as we should be. Uh, we haven't done as good a job on Kazakhstan or the region as we should have done, bearing in mind that we, we can, in principle, do better. I mean, it's obviously uh, Russia and China are self-interested powers. They're looking to see what they can get from Kazakhstan, be about political loyalty to Moscow or extraction of raw materials quarry-like for, you know, for, for China to feed its engine. We ought to do a better job than that. I'm not convinced we have done a, a much better job than that, but that's that's the future, and that's what we're trying to, trying to. That's why the, you know, it's incumbent upon us to to modestly, I hope, make suggestions for how the West can do better with Kazakhstan and how Kazakhstan can do better in and of its own as a as a increasingly mature independent state. I would say Kazakhstan was born into a beneficial world order, um, which has really helped it. It's kind of cement its sovereignty. And today we're looking at a very different world order. And although, I mean, the country has relations with Russia and China have been of of kind of paramount importance for the country since independence. Um, It's a key key kind of cornerstone of the country's foreign policy. But and this tradition, you know, looks set to continue. Mm. Um, But unfortunately, we're seeing more and more tensions arise within the bilateral relations between Russia and Kazakhstan um, and between um, Kazakhstan and China, particularly regarding Russia's sort of soft power. Uh, and it, it's kind of attempted, it's attempting to have more leverage over the country, particularly during, within the Eurasian Economic Union, but also China's treatment of um, ethnic Kazakhs in neighbouring Xin, in, in Xinjiang region within um, China um, is is kind of making it very difficult the the bilateral relationship and also both the the regional integration projects um, the Belt and Road Initiative and the Eurasian Economic Union are, are just creating um, um, difficulties between the two relationships and it will be very interesting to watch how how 
Kazakhstan you know, manages these relationships against a back a backdrop where the West is unfortunately disengaging um, from the region. Um, Kazakhstan is really of marginal interest um, to Western policy makers today um, and is very much seen just through the prism of Russia and, and, and um, China. In this age that we're living through where it seems whenever there's a political transition, be it an election or a, or a handover of power, that there seems to be foreign interference do you think these relationships between Russia and Kazakhstan and China and Kazakhstan, do you think they're likely to have an impact on who ultimately ends up with the power in Kazakhstan? Or do you think that's going to be domestic? Yes, um, definitely Russia will play a key role in 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 the kind of future leadership of, of Kazakhstan. Well, it will want to play a key role. Mm. Um, Nazarbayev and Putin have a very good relationship. Um, Putin respects um, Nazarbayev. And it's very unlikely that anyone who follows Nazarbayev and, and already, unfortunately, for the president, new president Tokayev, um, he doesn't have the same gravitas as how Nazarbayev is treated um, and um, as we've seen with Russia and Ukraine, um, this could, you know, this presents itself as a possibly a potentially very kind of difficult issue because there's still kind of over 20 percent um, of the Kazakhstani population are ethnic Russian and right. situated in the north of Kazakhstan. And um, in 2014, after the annexation of Crimea, um, there was um, a lot of concern in Kazakhstan that Russia um, could repeat these actions um, in Kazakhstan. Um, and these kind of undercurrents are very much there in the bilateral um, relationship. So, James, to come back to the report that you guys wrote, Kazakhstan Tested by Transition, obviously it includes a lot of recommendations, as you mentioned, for domestic policy in Kazakhstan, but also for um, foreign governments looking at how to engage with Kazakhstan. Could you maybe just run us through a, sort of a summary of those? What were the key elements mm. that we should be focusing on? Yeah, I mean, we had 20 and I won't go through all of those, obviously. Yeah, but um, yeah. <clears throat> I think for the West, a lot of it refers back to what, what we have all been saying now, which is that... Um, the West uh, focuses insufficient attention on Kazakhstan. Now, I know, obviously, that there's 196 countries in the world and they all think they're the most important. And, you know, even in a place like Chatham House, I mean, you know more than anybody in your position, but we're all vying for attention. We're all saying, no, I'm the most important. <laughs> and, and, you know, so obviously if you've got, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, our colleagues will tell you that that's true for us for Argentina or Vietnam, and, you know, here we are claiming it at Kazakhstan. And it's a little bit strange when, when you know, it's not, you know, it's not a it's not a major threat to anybody. It's not doing terribly. Why are we saying you know this is a priority when, of course, if everything's a priority, then nothing's a priority. Sure. So it's a, it's a it's a tough claim, but I'm you know we'll make it anyway because, for a start, that assumes that the future looks like the present, and that that cannot possibly be so as Nazarbayev inevitably um, comes to the end uh, uh, of his tenure, whatever that is right now. As, as Russia changes, we know we're probably going to have a different president in Russia in 2024, but not necessarily a different system, of course. Sure. Um, as China continues its seemingly inexorable rise and wants more and pushes at those boundaries in every sense of that word more, then the future will not look like the present. It has been managed relatively successfully hitherto by a master in Nazarbayev. But that, 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 that looks very unlikely 10 years from now. So for that reason, we need to be very focused on this. Also, were we not to focus more attention on Kazakhstan, then not only does nature, but uh, politics abhors a vacuum. Uh, 
And if we're not there, you know, Russia and China, in particular Russia, which obviously regards this as its backyard, baby, whatever analogy you want, uh, will move in in an attempt to recreate its the sphere of influence it believes that it merits um, for historical reasons. So if we are committed to pushing back on Russia's illegitimate ambitions, shall we say, mm. then Kazakhstan is one area, as Kate has alluded to, where we might do that. Not that Russia is going to invade. That seems highly unlikely. Kazakhstan would have to you know, apply to NATO, frankly, and, and be accepted into NATO for that to be even a possibility. And even then, that might not happen. So, I, you know, we, we shouldn't be alarmist about it. But Russia tries to inveigle its way in through other means, not least through um, uh, propaganda in the media. And that's something else that we need to assist Kazakhstan in fighting back against, whereby so much of the information coming into the country comes from Russia. So those are the principal uh, recommendations for the West. But then for Kazakhstan, it also goes back, the government of Kazakhstan itself, it goes back to what we were saying earlier as well, where greater clarity about how the country is governed, where power lies, would make the country that much more attractive to everybody. And finally, at least for purposes um, of this answer, then it has to be said that Kazakhstan does not have a pristine human rights record. And if it wants to be accepted more as a major player in the international community, it's going to have to do a better job on the treatment of its own population. As I say, people um, do not mysteriously disappear uh, as far as I am aware, uh, as they did 20 years ago or so. But there is, you know, there are political prisoners. Um, there is a sort of a circular release one, lock one up um, sort of system, if you like. And uh, there, is a, there is a sinister, <laughs> I use the word again, undercurrent to, uh, to the regime, which is not at all evident from the, you know, when you go... Um, and if you have a little bit of knowledge, that being a dangerous thing. So I think that I think Kazakhstan's, Kazakhstan does need and has the opportunity to, under Tokayev, under a new president, even if he has limited powers, to capitalise on its pre-existing advantages and gains and, and really be a model. And if it can be a model for other Central Asian states, other South Caucasus states, then you have a much more flourishing region rather than the sort of a disappointment that we've seen hitherto. And and this will be particularly um, evident as neighbouring Uzbekistan, you know, as it undertakes its kind of momentous um, reform programme. And I think lots of um, Kazakhstanis are, you know, eyeing what then the kind of southern neighbour um, to see what happens and, and, and comparing it to the lack of reform and the stagnation in their own country. Mm. Well, I guess we'll have to have you back on later in the year to talk about what's happened. You can read Kazakhstan Tested by Transition on the Chatham House website now. James, Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Thank yes, you, Ben. Thanks a lot, Ben. OK, really fascinating interview there, but we are back Gemma Finnegan is still with me, um, still here in the kind of slightly dingy media studio. It's very, it's very nice, but it's just a bit kind of, it is a bit like a cave. It's, it's the most subterranean room in Chatham House and it's not even underground. Um, so, but we're here, Gemma, to talk about Common Futures Conversations. What is Common Futures Conversations? Common Futures Conversations is a new initiative that Chatham House launched last week 
Um, We're working with the Robert Bosch Foundation, which has been a great partner. But basically, the premise of the project is to increase conversations among young people in Africa and Europe, but also between young people in both continents and policymakers. Really at the essence of the project was this kind of principle of co-creation. And we kind of arrived at this mission for the project through this survey that we ran. So at the beginning of the project, uh, we kind of had a mandate to look at how to connect young people in Africa and Europe. And we didn't know where we were going to go from there. So we recruited 27 young people across Africa and Europe from 13 different countries. There was an open application process. And from there, we got to our 27 fantastic CFC founding members. And we held three workshops, one in London in December 2018. That is right. One in Addis in Ethiopia in February 2019, and one this past October in Accra in Ghana. And at these workshops, we really kind of posed the question to these young people of what they would want from this project and built it from there. So we really had the vision that this project was meant for young people, so young people should be driving it. Mm -hmm. So at the first workshop, we designed a survey, and this survey we distributed to I think it was 4,000 people. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just over, just over 4,000. Yeah, and that survey kind of gathered young people's views on their social media use, what political issues they're interested in, and ultimately, which kind of proved to be the most important part, how connected they felt to politics and politicians. Mm-hmm. And the main thing we realized was that a huge amount of our respondents were really engaged and interested in politics, but the same amount felt really disconnected from the people that were making these decisions. So we really realized that, you know, as Chatham House, we were really well positioned to help bridge this gap. So we decided that that's what this platform was going to be about. That's amazing. What a summary. It is quite exciting to be sort of here at the start of 2020 when we've been working so for such a long time trying to such a long sort time. of think about what could <laughs> this be and now it kind of is. Mm-hmm. So tell us a bit about what we've launched in the last week and how it's going to work. So basically Common Futures Conversations has taken a form of a platform. So an online website as you would kind of say. And on this website we're going to have dialogue stages. So we're focusing on three different topics, which our survey also illuminated as the most important topics young people thought were facing their countries domestically or the international community. And those are climate change, inequality, and conflict and violence. So on January 20th, last Monday at the time of recording this, we launched the website. So it's a digital platform where young people we'll be able to collaborate on discussions of three main topics, which we also identified in our survey. So in the survey, we asked young people what were the most important issues they saw facing their countries domestically, but also internationally, and we arrived at climate change, uh, conflict and violence, and inequality. And there's going to be these dialogue stages. But Ben, you could probably tell us a bit more about that, because Ben is actually leading this project. That is right. So, yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, you've explained it all so well, so I didn't really think I should add anything. But, I'll yeah, I'll tell you a bit about the uh, the way that the platform's actually going to function. So young people that are part of this platform can sort of engage with um, each other and with Chatham House 
in all sorts of different ways. So uh, there's a blog that they can contribute to. There is like direct messaging. It kind of works like social media. Um, there's a live stream for all of our events. So people can tune in and watch the events that Chatham House puts on. We do about 500 events a year, I think. So it's going to be quite busy on there. And then there's also this kind of main feature, which are called challenges. Every month we're going to be setting uh, new challenges for people to address. And the idea is that they will be specific topics from the big three themes and people can engage with Chatham House research on those themes. Then they can develop their ideas, like what should people be doing to solve these? They can be proposing their own solutions. They can be asking questions. They can be sort of trying to work out a bit more about this issue. For instance, one of the early ones that we're going to be working on is youth unemployment. How do we solve youth unemployment as a, as a problem across Europe and Africa? And then once they've proposed those ideas, the community will collaborate to kind of refine those ideas. There's voting that people can comment, ask questions on each other's ideas, kind of shape those and sort of say, OK, well, have you thought about this angle? Or actually, we tried your idea in my local community and it didn't work for these reasons. So maybe we could adapt the concept in this way. And basically at the end of the of the month we'll end up voting on the ideas that the community thinks are the best ideas in terms of how they could address that problem at which point we will be inviting in a high level policymaker who works on that issue and we'll be having a dialogue with them uh, an online Q&A or a webinar um, where the community can put those ideas to that individual and hear about what the individual thinks about the particular issue so that's the kind of exchange that we're trying to get going. So it should be, yeah, I think it'll be pretty exciting. But it is, it's just nerve wracking now, right? Because we've got, yeah, we've it's open. People can sign up and yeah, it's a bit of an if you build it, they will come moment. Yeah, <laughs> to put it out in the world after such a long time of working on it was definitely nerve wracking. Absolutely. But, but we've, we've had some, a good response. We have had a good response. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, at time of recording, like I think we're over 400 applications, which is very exciting. So one thing I should have said is that uh, we have this call open at the moment. And by the time you listen to this, there will be two days left of the call. So there will still be time to sign up through the Chatham House website. Just search Common Futures Conversations and you will find the relevant information or it's all over LinkedIn and Instagram and everything. However, it is a closed platform. We've done this partly because our community told us that that was something that was really important to them, that we were creating a safe space where people could sort of freely exchange their views without fear of kind of being observed. Um, some of the people that will be involved in this are living in countries where maybe you can't be as open about what you think about the political situation. So in order to make sure that everyone feels comfortable and happy to share, this is a closed space, which is why we're asking for applications to sign up. But there will be plenty of content that we'll be sharing as a result throughout the whole year. There'll be offline events that people can join. So even if in this call you can't take part, then it doesn't mean that we don't want to engage with you. Exactly. And mm -hmm. I think a really important thing also to highlight is that we really want everyone to be participating in this. There's no formal education requirement to having an important opinion you don't have to have gone to school for political science or studied international relations. We really just want to hear what's going on in your community and how we can help and how other people can help and what, you know, people can learn. So there is no formal requirements. Exactly. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Apart from, we should have said at the very outset, you have to live somewhere in Africa and Europe and you have to be aged somewhere between 18 and 30. But yeah, so so that's Common Futures. Yay. Gemma, thanks so much for coming in to tell us about it. Thank you for having me. And that's it, actually, for this episode of Undercurrents. I uh, hope you've enjoyed listening. Um, Kazakhstan, I now feel super informed. And I, to be honest, uh, to be frank, it's something I should know more about and I didn't. So it was very nice for me to be able to sit and talk to James and Kate about that. So we will be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews for you and a return for our erstwhile colleague, Agnes Rimston. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Gemma Finnegan. And this has been Undercurrents.